By the way, I'm drinking this thing that I saw on TikTok called Twisted Tea. <laughs> you obviously missed all the Twisted Tea memes a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. I did. I did. I was not on social media a couple months ago. We had a lot going on. Fair. Um, yeah. But anyway, it's not bad. It's like Mike's Hard Lemonade, but tea instead of lemonade. Hello, I am Rachel, and that is Grace. Hello, I am Grace, and that is Rachel. Welcome back to episode 77. 77. 77. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode. We do apologize for it coming out so late. It just, a lot of things happened at once for us, and (laughs) unfortunately, personal and work lives interfered with podcast life. As they are wont to do. Yes. But we are back and we intend to stay back for a little while. So, today. Where are we today? We are on uh, Roanoke Island, North Carolina. I was really confused why you said we are on for a second. I was like, yes, <laughs> we are on. Usually it's we are in. Your sentence yes. makes sense to me now that I paid yeah. attention. Um, so my history for this one is longer than usual because... There is, and um, obviously I had planned on um, doing The Lost Colony as my story, but I ended up changing it. To be fair, The Lost Colony is the history. Exactly. And I was like, well, it could be like an interesting, like, mysterious, uh, what happened? But I feel like what happened is... I mean, there's obviously no, like, paranormal aspect there. It's just a mystery. Yeah, and it's probably not even that much of a mystery, but I'll get into that. Okay. So, my sources are nps.gov and Wikipedia. Yeah. And another one that I used for my actual story, but it's whatever. So, Roanoke Island is an island in Dare County on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I do have to say, I did not know that Roanoke Island was in North Carolina until I started doing my story. And I was like, North Carolina? Really? I know. uh, It threw me off because in my mind, Roanoke was always in Virginia. Right. Because Roanoke, Virginia. Right. So it really threw me off when I started looking for you a story because I was like, oh, well, let me go ahead and just like grab her something since I I already appreciated that so much. It made it so easy. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wait, what does this say, North Carolina? What the fuck is going on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The name Roanoke comes from the Roanoke, Carolina Algonquin people who originally resided on the island for at least 800 years prior to colonization. The island was, for literally thousands of years, the site of ancient indigenous settlements, potentially dating back to 8,000 BC. The meaning of the word Roanoke itself is derived from the Powhatan language. It means, like, white beads made from shells, or, like, more literally, it's uh, things rubbed smooth by hand. Oh, so, like, polished. Yeah, and those white beads, um, white beads made from shells, um, were used as ornaments and currency for the coastal Algonquin people of Virginia and North Carolina. That is actually one of my favorite little tidbits of information, is that coastal tribes used shells as currency. Yeah, I always thought it was so happy. 
1584, the island was explored by Captains Philip Amadas and Arthur Barlow, who had been sent there by Sir Walter Raleigh to select a site for an English colony in North America. Um, following the previous expedition, Englishmen had initially positive relations with nearby Native Americans, including the Roanoke and Croatoan tribes, both of whom had representatives travel to England to meet Elizabeth's court. They were named Wanches and Mantio. That is what Google told me. I even watched multiple videos. Is it Mantio? Because I have a name like that in mind too, and I said Manteo. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mantio. Uh, they also brought samples of tobacco and potatoes and, uh, you know, descriptions of the region's friendly inhabitants and um, how, like, fertile the soil is, stuff like that, prompting Walter Raleigh to attempt colonization. Okay. Raleigh f- first found a colony of 108 settlers under the command of his cousin, Sir Richard Grenville. They sailed from Plymouth, England in April 15. 15- 85 and reached land in june after exploring the north carolina coast they landed on the north end of roanoke island where they built a fort grenville then returned to england to secure more supplies leaving the colony under the command of ralph lane um mm. supplies began to run low and the positive relationship with the native americans in the area soured very quickly under his leadership he fucked that shit up, basically. He ordered attacks on Native American villages, I'm assuming an attempt to get gain supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they attacked the fort in return. Lane and his men actually abandoned Roanoke when Sir Francis Drake's ship passed by one night, leaving three men behind. Soon after, a supply ship from Raleigh arrived to find the colony empty. By the time Grenville returned two weeks later, he found the Lane colony abandoned, so he left another 15 men there to, like, hold England's claim with two years' worth of food (laughs) before he went back to England. Raleigh's second colony, consisting of about 150 settlers under the command of John White, sailed from Plymouth in May of 1587. Uh, They landed at Roanoke Island in July, but found the fort raised and the remains of only one of the 15 men. Oh my. Yeah, the others were never found. Uh, The settlers, who this time were more farmers and women and children, uh, to be specific, 97 men, 17 women, and 9 boys. Uh, They built houses and repaired those remaining from the previous colony. Virginia Dare, the granddaughter of John White, was born on August 18th and was the first English child born in North America. White, unlike Lane, at least temporarily soothed relations with the native population by having Manteo make peace with the colony and uh, between the colony and the Croatoans, his native tribe, living on Hatteras Island. Side note, the Roanoke man who had left with him previously, Wanches, eventually felt differently than Manteo, believing that the English were an invading force. Um, and legend has it he participated in the force that killed Granville's uh, 15 men. Yeah. <laughs> White returned to England soon after to get more supplies because the colonists were... They arrived too late to plant crops. They really did not plan this well. He didn't plan to stay gone for long, but the war with Spain prevented him from obtaining a ship to supply the colony. When he did return to Roanoke in August of 1590, three years later, he found all 117 of the settlers had disappeared. Okay. The fort was overgrown with grass and roots, guns were all over the ground, and chests that had been buried previously to protect valuables were open and empty. And some... Although some things like cherished books, pictures, and belongings were just laying on the ground. It seemed like they hadn't left in a hurry that they took their time. Yeah. White had provided a coded signal to his colonists to leave in case, you know, danger, Mm -hmm. they got attacked or something, and uh, they fled somewhere, then they should carve a cross in a tree. Instead, he found two different carvings uh, when he returned. One had the letters C-R-O etched into the bark, and the other just said Croatoan. 
Okay. White's personal belief, which is still one of the most convincing, was that this meant they had gone to live with Manteo's people on Croatoan Island. Okay. Or Hatteras now. Yeah. However, he could never verify that since an approaching storm forced him to protect his two ships and return home to England. For some reason, he never mounted another rescue attempt and he died three years later. Because he probably got sick and he was sick for three years. I don't know. It wasn't specified. Anyway, after the failure of the English Roanoke colony, native peoples on the island endured for 70 more years until the 1650 final war between the Powhatan tribe and the Jamestown colony that started in 1646. Another colony, more populous than that of Raleigh, was developed at the on the island during the American Civil War. After Union forces took over the island in 1862, it became a haven for enslaved families from throughout the region, as they were considered contraband, contraband. by the military. Yeah, and they wouldn't return them mm. return them to the Confederates. So they, uh, the army established the Roanoke Island Freedmen's Colony in 1863, which was a sort of um, social experiment as part of the UN- U.S.'s developing policies related to the future of like enslaved people once they'd been freed so they wanted to make it self-sustaining so there was a sawmill bill and freedmen were allotted lands to cultivate they assisted the union troops in rebuilding forts on roanoke and hatteras island as well as new Bern and other strategic areas in north carolina mm-hmm. they also served as cooks woodcutters teamsters longshoremen carpenters and blacksmiths The women were also employed, and other African Americans were employed as spies, scouts, guides, and completed a lot of invaluable missions for the Union. At one point, over 3,000 people lived in this colony. Okay. And so I think it's very interesting. Quite a bit. That we've never heard of it. Yeah. At the end of the war, uh, government... Well, this will probably (laughs) tell you why Mm. we haven't really heard of it. At the end of the war, the government... A government order restored all lands that were confiscated by the Union Army back to the original owners, which, yeah. Yeah. The black residents on Roanoke Island failed to receive the rights and privileges to their homesteads, which which were promised by the government when they established the colony. Further government orders that reduced food rations and other necessities uh, basically meant that the colony was done. By late 1866, the freedmen's population had dwindled to a few families, and by 1867, the colony was officially decommissioned. Most freedmen chose to leave the island, and the army arranged for their transportation to towns and counties on the mainland, where they looked for work. In 1870, only 300 freedmen were living on the island, and some of their descendants still live there today. The first bridge connecting the islands towards Nags Head was built in 1924, and it was on- the only road constructed to Roanoke Island for over 30 years, which, as Roanoke was introduced to the national market economy by the bridge, the fishing sales and local economy suffered from Great Depression, and then it was also greatly affected by the 1933 Outer Banks hurricane, and then the waterfront of the city of Manteo on the island was destroyed by a severe fire in 1939. But obviously they rebuilt. Yeah. In response to the crisis, the New Deal came to Roanoke Island to provide employment, like desperately needed employment. The outdoor theater play The Lost Colony, written by Paul Green, began in 1936 and attracted the visit of President Franklin Roosevelt in 1937. The Lost Colony continues its performance every summer season, although I'm not sure if it's still happening due to the pandemic. Yes. Oh, it is? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is. Okay, cool. So here are some interesting facts about the island. In 2001, Dare County erected a marble monument to the Freedmen's Colony at the Fort Raleigh Historic Site. It's listed as a site within the National Underground Railroad to Freedom Network of the National Park Service. It's the home and burial place of Andy Griffith. Okay. (laughs) And maybe people who are older or enjoyed the Andy Griffith show would probably enjoy that one more. Okay. Um, Because I enjoyed that, but I also grew up watching it, so. Uh, Possibly the oldest cultivated grapevine in the world is the 400-year-old Scuppernong 
mother vine growing on Roanoke Island. The scuppernong is the state fruit of North Carolina. It's a type of grape. Okay. Can I have a cutting of that plant, please? It sounds... It. I looked it up. It looks very interesting. It's like multicolored almost. Ooh. Like some of them are green. Some of them are a darker like purple. It just varies. I don't know. Uh, some interesting places to visit include Fort Raleigh National Historic Site, North Carolina Aquarium, Roanoke Island Festival Park, Elizabethan Gardens, and obviously beaches. It's literally an island. And that's a, that's yeah. Oh my goodness, that that is honestly a lot more information than I expected for Roanoke Island, because the yeah the only thing I knew was that the initial the lost colony co- yeah. yeah colony went mi- missing. It just that's that's it. No, oh, that's so much. Unfortunately, there's no supernatural. Um, no. Thing, so, although I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is because I heard about it as a kid and then I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting and cool. And then Supernatural did an episode right. where they carved Croatoan on, but then, it, yeah. Okay, well, I guess it is my turn. Grace already mentioned the Lost Colony uh, theater production. Mm-hmm. And it is an outdoor theater production. So, and because I didn't go into it, I'm super grateful that you did because it is kind of sort of part of my story. Cool. So. Like a Shakespeare in the park sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And like, like I said, if, if I keep that in, it is continuing to play during COVID and now it's almost, it's almost post-COVID, but because it's an outdoor venue, it is still going on. In fact, tickets are now on sale for the 2021 season. If you would Mm. like to go, just visit thelostcolony.org. Also, it opens on May 28th, so, like, we could literally go. (laughs) I... mm, I don't know about that. Okay. My story contains a brief mention of sexual assault that may be triggering for some listeners, so if that pertains to you... I'd advise that you fast forward about 20 to 30 minutes to Grace's story. Also, another warning. I briefly mentioned suicide, so please fast forward if this is triggering to you. So, my story this week, thanks to Grace, because I really, I couldn't remember if I found this story, so I was like, I'm just gonna go with it, because I'm not gonna question (laughs) it. I couldn't remember if I found it or not, (laughs) so just, I went with it. It is the disappearance and murder of Brenda Joyce Holland. So, my sources are a podcast called The Tales We Tell by Hannah Parch and her husband. Also, their relationship, super duper cute. Um, okay. I highly recommend you listening to their podcast just, because, just for their relationship. It's so stinking cute. What was it called again? The Tales We Tell. Okay, yeah. cool. And then one, two, three, four, five, six articles from thecoastlandtimes.com, hmm. uh, thestate.com, newsobserver.com, wral.com, two wral.com articles. I feel like it's not very often that we get um, a place that's so small but has so much, like local coverage on something but see the articles that i found all related back to the articles told by a mr john riley and his articles came out in 2018 Mm. so very 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 long after the fact there might have been press coverage at the time but i couldn't find anything like online which is honestly it was a while ago, so it makes sense. But yeah. speaking of, you know, just right off the bat, I want to lead into this. He will never listen to our podcast. <laughs> but John Riley does get a huge shout out because he single-handedly reopened this case with his journalism and fought to get oh, wow. some sort of resolution for Miss Holland's family. Oh, that's great. So... You'll know by the end. It's not a great resolution, but it's a resolution. So, Brenda Joyce Holland was born July 8th, 1947 to Charles Wiley and Geraldine Hannah Ray Holland. 
Brenda and her siblings grew up in the mountains of Canton, North Carolina. She was the first in her family to attend college, spending the summer of her 19th year at what was Campbell College in Bowie's Creek. That year, um, 1967, was the summer of finding herself. Because we've all mm-hmm. needed a summer for finding ourselves. I know I did. Uh, she cut her... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it takes multiple. Sometimes it really does take multiple. Sometimes it takes a whole four years. Sometimes it takes a whole lifetime. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, she had beautiful, long brown hair that she proceeded to cut short and dye blonde. Looked great on her. Before finding a job as a makeup artist at the local theater known as the Lost Colony. In oh, Man- she was a makeup artist? She was a makeup artist for the the play The Lost Colony in Manteo, North Carolina. She quickly became well-loved within the company and moved on up quickly to also be the staff leader. Be a staff leader. Like, leadership skills. Brenda was having a great 19th year of her life. She moved away from home. She was in school. She got a job that she loved with people who loved her presence. You know, she even had some luck on the guy front. Casually. Mm. Casually. Mm. Seeing a young man named Danny Barber. He was 24 years old, a fellow Lost Colony cast member, had served in the U.S. Army, and had been attending the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So, like, overall, he was a genuinely good guy. Stereotypical, genuinely good good guy. (laughs) (laughs) I say stereotypical, but he, other than one thing, he seemed to be a good guy. Anyway... Brenda had gone a date with Danny Boy on Friday, June 30th, 1967. They went to a tavern, got a couple of drinks, then went to Nags Head, which I'm glad you mentioned because in the articles... I just barely mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. In the articles I found, I couldn't find, like, the name of where they went. I had to listen to the podcast, and she spoke Mm. so fast. I was like, what'd she say? So I just did a Google search of fishing spots. (laughs) Fishing spots in Nags Head. Right. <laughs> um, in order to watch the fishermen. So, odd date, but when there's not a lot going on, you gotta, you do what you gotta do. Small towns. <sighs> Small towns, man. They then returned to Danny's house on Burnside Road, which he shared with a couple of other guys. The two stayed up talking with his housemates for a while before Danny fell asleep and Brenda decided to walk herself home. This was the logical choice for her because it was only a few blocks from the house that she was renting a room from on Ananias Dear Street. Yeah, like, you know, when you when you live nearby somewhere, what's the point? It's, it's literally just a few blocks away from Burnside Road. It's like back when I lived in my old house and I would just walk over to Krista's. I did not need right. anything else. Right. But this was... You know, this was actually really late at night, like two o'clock late at night. So I'm not sure how comfortable I would have felt, but 67 is completely different than 2021. Okay. I was like, 67, where are you going 1967 with this? Okay. is a completely yeah. different time than 2021. And true. And it's also about like how familiar you are with the area. Right. And how right. It just depends. Right. Exactly. Unfortunately, this was the last time that anyone saw her. The following evening, when Danny was questioned as to why Brenda wasn't at work, he told a regular customer of the Lost Colony that he had dropped Brenda off at the house she was renting from. And it's... Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of at this point that people are, are like, oh god, she's missing. So now she's officially reported missing. Missing. Her parents are called, they come all the way down from Canton to Mantillo, and, you know, a massive search ensued that following Monday. So, she goes on a date with Danny on Friday. Saturday, they question where she's at, and she's suddenly reported missing. The search starts on Monday. Mm. A whole day in between, but, you know. Her purse and wallet were found in a wooded area nearby to Danny's house. So, the search began there. And this went on with 
little to no evidence being found. They did find, by kind of sifting through the wet, sandy area where her purse was found, her compact and a torn pair of women's underwear. The underwear, however, were not confirmed to be hers or not. So, by Thursday morning, July 6th, 1967, so now a full six days later, a search plane pilot spotted a body near Mashu's in Albemarle Sound. The Dare County Sheriff, Frank Cahoon, or Cahoon in colloquialism, and others managed to recover the body. He then brought in Danny to identify said body. He apparently took one look at her, walked away, and then came back and confirmed that this was indeed her. However, this was Sheriff Cahoon's way to try and break their only suspect because one he initially lied about about that night he later came forward and told the police what actually happened honestly her parents still could have done it but still this was his way to try to break the suspect but it (laughs) he wasn't lying in the end so he didn't break he was actually more sad from the get-go the scene was handled very poorly um for one there were no photos of the body and this is, like, the number one thing you do what? when I recover a body. I... Right. The... And What? Right. Apparently, there were some reporters there who managed to take photos that were later collected for evidence. However, those photos have since disappeared. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I understand it's a small town. Like, you might not be totally, like, used to that sort of thing but i feel like there still would have been procedure there's procedures and there's protocols and is there's certain things you have to follow didn't happen but they also apparently removed the necklace that brenda had been wearing which removed any skin that had been clinging to it oh they then washed it off and gave it to brenda's father like Uh i understand that they were being sentimental and giving it to her father for the purposes that you would for yeah but emotionally and i guess at the time they didn't technically have like dna right but right but it's also one of those things that because they tore off the part of the skin that is so close to the neck if this had been a strangulation they tore away any evidence Mm-hmm. Yeah. On top of that... You would think that they would wait to do that until after, like, an autopsy or something. Mm-hmm. I... Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. No, you are completely correct. They should have waited until after an autopsy, but this whole thing just wasn't handled correctly, unfortunately. On top of that, there was also a lot of physical evidence which should have been preserved. However, like the photos I mentioned, they were sent off-site and lost. Oh my god. Or was quite literally lost to begin with. This includes uh, the clothes that Brenda had worn and been recovered in. Like, they lost those. Due to the compromised crime scene and all of the above listed factors, it is likely that this case went cold, but only because prosecutors knew that there wasn't enough to pursue a case against any of their suspects, including Danny Boy. How do you lose every single piece of evidence? I can't answer that. <laughs> this was also 60 plus years ago. Okay, I know. I, okay, sorry. They have a lot less procedures than we do now. The family was allowed to take Brenda back to be buried in her hometown. The service was held and she was laid to rest on what have been her 20th birthday. Mm-hmm. While there was no clear evidence proving that Danny was the one who killed Brenda, those who stayed on this investigation just kept on him. And this was, again, mainly due to his slip-up where he initially lied about taking her all the way home rather than back to his place. Which is kind of sketchy, but a lot of the people who knew him the best believed that he was scared and made a mistake. Pretty freaking big mistakes. But still. Pretty big mistake, but... But still. Um, in fact... Many residents at the time actually pointed fingers to local dentist, Linus Edwards. He was oh, suspect. that's very unliked dentist. <laughs> very <laughs> unliked dentist. Oh. Yes. He was a native of Durham, North Carolina, muscular, and standing at six feet, two inches tall and weighing 195 pounds. 
He was an alcoholic and a violent one at that, apparently raining hell on his family. Edwards had been a dentist with the U.S. Army. While he was in service, he apparently choked his first wife until her daughter threatened to hit him with a mallet. Holy shit. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, which helped a lot in this case, actually interviewed with this daughter. She alleged that Edwards had drunkenly spoken of killing a woman in Chicago named Sheila. Oh dear. However, the SBI was unable to confirm who he would have spoken about. She also alleged that he would often speak of suicide... And then on the night of November 17th, 1960, he had slit his left wrist in his Columbia, South Carolina quarters because he was still in the army. Mm. Yeah. This was actually confirmed with military records at the time. Okay. Edwards was then honorably discharged from the army in the following March. Quickly after his discharge from the army, him and his wife found himself in Manteo, North Carolina, where he was practically the only dentist in town. And it's here that this marriage ended and he began his second marriage with Dottie Fry in 1964. Mm. So we are still three years away from all that. According to witnesses, this relationship was not the greatest. Edwards would frequently beat Dottie, once to the point of hospitalization. Shit. However... No charges were pressed. Of course. By her or her family. That, mm. Yeah. Can't bl- can't victim blame, though, but... That sucks. It sucks. Many in the town believe that Dottie and Brenda were sort of kind of similar in appearance. They were mm. both blonde with soft features and long necks. And I don't like how that's the only way they can compare them. Blonde hair, soft features, long neck. Yeah. Okay. Like, are they the same height? Are they the same weight? Anything? Just blonde hair, soft features, long neck. That's so very descriptive of, like, 30% of the population of women. You know, yeah. I mean... <laughs> not... Maybe not there. Maybe not there. Not not that much. That's an exaggeration. But, anyway. Also, apparently, one of Danny Boy's housemates was a co-worker and friend of Dottie's. Dottie would frequently visit this friend, and Edwards was insanely jealous of this. Many believed that because of his violent outbursts, that possibly Edwards could have mistaken Brenda for Dottie. It is believed that the night slash morning, because it was super late slash early, of Brenda's disappearance, Dottie and Edwards had gotten into a bad fight, and Edwards threatened to kill her. Dottie, in turn, left the couple's house for a friend's house. Edwards, drunk and angered, eventually followed her, believing that she went to her friend's house on Burnside Road, uh, which is Danny Boy's house. Right, yeah. It is believed that Edwards, being drunk and angry and driving around at night, may have seen Brenda walking along the road. He may have attacked her, thinking that she was his wife, and thrown her into his car possibly physically assaulting her and then strangling her. Mm. When he realized what he had done, he then drove to the coast and dumped her body off a bridge before rushing home. This theory is also sort of kind of backed up by the fact that on the night of Brenda's disappearance, the local ABC supervisor, Robert Midget, who lived only a few doors down from Danny's house, had apparently heard a car stop and a woman's ungodly screams at around three in the morning. He didn't think that was weird. He didn't think it was weird. He mentioned it, but it wasn't that weird. <laughs> you know, I had heard the weirdest <laughs> shit last night at like 3 a.m. It was like a woman just, just fucking screaming, screaming. Her head Although, off. Although, you know what? I cannot, I can't really judge because all of the gunshots that I hear coming from the apartments behind my house right and but i mean only so far only only like only one of them turned out to be actually somebody dying so half the time it's just to keep property values down yeah i don't think they need help with that (laughs) but you might be correct yep the next night edwards went to the sheriff's office and reported that his wife was missing when he returned home and found her there his face was as white as a ghost and he said i thought you were gone forever oh my 
God. Something else to absolutely keep in mind is that Dottie Fry totally implied to investigators that Edwards confessed to her several times over the course of what remained of their marriage to uh, Brenda's murder. What the fuck? Just weeks after Brenda's body was found, Sheriff Cahoon informed SBI agents that Edwards was a possible suspect in the case. However, he didn't go along with the mistaken identity theory that he just thought Brenda was his wife. Instead, he claimed that he had received anonymous tips that Edwards and his wife had had some domestic difficulties the night of the disappearance. However, that still kind of ties in with... Mm -hmm. That still ties in. Anyway. The following month, apparently, Edwards had come into the sheriff's office to confess that he had nothing to do with Brenda's murder. Mm-hmm. He claimed that the rumor got started at the sheriff's office and that it was going to ruin his marriage and career. Mm, I'm pretty sure you're beating your wife to do that, but, you know... <laughs> you mm. know, that's logical thinking. Cahoon assured Edwards that the rumor did not start at the sheriff's office and that he should go home. And he did. And he was also not looked at seriously as Brenda's killer. Of course not. Despite several people in the community believing this rumor wholeheartedly. You know. Then on Valentine's Day, 1971, Edwards called Sheriff Cahoon and his attorney to meet him at his house. He also requested that the local doctor, W.W. W. Harvey Jr., came as well. Edwards then took a set of dentures that had been ordered by Harvey and left them neatly on Harvey's dining room table. When he got back to his house, he put a 22 caliber pistol to his head. And despite what rumors around town say, he left no note for the sheriff to find. Nothing confessing to the murder of Brenda Holland or apologizing for the way he treated his ex-wives. Just the set of dentures, which were his last obligation he wanted to complete before he left this world. Mm. So, that is the very sad and very unsolved murder of Brenda Holland, which, as of 2018, the case was reopened, but I could not find where they confirmed anything as to who the killer was. You know, for all of the cases that you pick that don't have... I didn't um, pick this one! A ending. <laughs> I feel <laughs> just as responsible in this case. Um... <laughs> You are welcome. My bad. It was like the only one I found. It was the first one I found. I just went with the first one. Um, I mean, technically, it does have an ending. All signs point to Mr. Edwards. However, he's dead, so he can't confirm or deny. Yeah. But, like I said, huh. in the intro, um, John Riley has convinced the SBI to reopen the case and That's try good. to give some form of closure to the family i think it's just so wild that they managed to lose every single <laughs> bit of evidence Everything. in this case they didn't even take their own pictures they didn't i that I, hmm. it was hmm. a fun case to cover for sure okay i guess it's my turn now yep it's your turn all righty so, like what I said before, um, I, so I, I was going to originally talk about the Lost Colony, and but then I was, like I told you, there's no paranormal aspect whatsoever, and even, like, yeah. the mystery of the disappearance of the colony is, has a pretty rational, a couple it's a rational of different pretty rational explanations. Yeah. So, I just, uh, checked out some other stuff. Um, Works for me. So these are some legends of Roanoke Island. Ooh. Yes. Um, legends slash hauntings. Oh, ooh, there's multiples. There's multiples. Mm. There's multiples. You'll see. Oh, okay. So Fine. my sources are Britannica.com, Wikipedia, OuterBanksVacations.com, PilotOnline.com, SoutEasternGhosts.blogspot.com, and OuterBanks.org. That is quite a lot. Eh, only six. Okay, so I'm gonna start off with with a legend surrounding Virginia Dare, the Ooh. daughter of John White and the first English child born in what would eventually be America. And 
honestly, I don't know how to fe- mm, how I really feel about this. I'll talk about it later. Okay. So, while the fate of the colonists remain unknown because of what Virginia Dare represented to colonizers and those back in Europe uh, equally, uh, different but equal, this sort of legend was born in which she survived and lived peacefully with the Croatoan tribe and assimilated to their culture. It said that she grew up to be a beautiful woman, earning the attention of many, including a native shaman, who many um, sources call a witch doctor, which is not... Yeah, there's differences. Angry that she rebuffed his romantic advances, legend has it that he transformed her into a white doe. And this ghost or specter of Virginia Dare is said to roam Roanoke Island to this day in the form of an elusive white deer, which has been seen by both locals and visitors. So here's my, here are my multiple issues with this legend. Um, It was most likely one that was created by white people who wanted to villainize local natives by using a white girl as a victim Mm -hmm. of a Native American man. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought I was looking into it too much, but as it turns out, uh, she is often used by white supremacists who want to keep North Carolina, quote, European American. Hmm. In the 1920s, a group that opposed suffrage for women feared that black women would get the vote, and one group in Raleigh, North Carolina, urged that, quote, North Carolina remain white in the name of Virginia Dare. Yeah. Today, Virginia Dare's name is used for the V-Dare website, which is associated with white supremacy, white nationalism, and the alt-right. It's been described as one of the most prolific anti-immigration media outlets in the United States, which is pretty ironic, considering the person it's named after was, in fact, the child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I just did not like any of that. that yeah did not like that so the next legend is also very short it's about roanoke island inn which is known for strange occurrences mm-hmm. the inn is now owned by jason and lauren borland who purchased the property in 2018 it's made up of um, like mostly the original building, but it's been renovated and expanded over the years. And the hope was, home was first built in the 1960s by Asa and Martha Jones. The Jones's son, Roscoe, was a well-respected postal worker who, according to this legend, lost his job in the early 1900s. Some say that he was so humiliated that he became a recluse and mostly confined himself to his own room in the inn until his death. Not long after that, there were reports of a man donning a postal worker's uniform coming and going around the inn. Innkeepers and guests have also reported hearing footsteps when no one else is there, radios turning on and off, and the blinds moving by themselves. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any first-hand accounts about this anywhere, so that's all that I had to go on. And if you think there's barely inf- any information online about the Roanoke Island Inn, there's even less about the Pioneer Theater just down the street. What? It's, um, <laughs> when so there's much- literally information <laughs> about the Lost Colony play and the theater that it does. Mm-hmm. Well, so this, this theater down the street, it's like really a r- affordable single screen family theater and, you know, one of those cute little things locals say the former owner demanded that moviegoers be respectful of each other by silencing cell phones and i guess he died i'm not sure there are a (laughs) lot of reports of a mysterious force or spirit knocking cell phones from visitors (laughs) using them in the theater Yes, (laughs) that that is a ghost I can relate to. (laughs) Which I appreciate, you know, but I couldn't find anything else about it. Like, I was hoping to at least find maybe, like, a Reddit thread or, like, a post on something, but I couldn't really find anything. Even on their website, I couldn't find anything. It's fine. So, this is the large chunk of the story. So, while there's not really a lot of information on either one of those, I did find an article about the experiences of a couple of people who lived in the area at the time. It's on Mother Vineyard Road, you know, with the 400-year-old. Yeah. One incident happened in the summer of 2005, I believe. 
Chris Hannant and his friend Chris Ellison were out on Mother Vineyard Road, the street where the 400-year-old mother vine grows, on a dock that they called the Ghost Dock or the Plankton Dock one night. It was about midnight, but there was enough moonlight to see clearly. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, out of the shadows, an even darker shadow just slid out. Hannant described it as a blob shape. <laughs> two-dimensional, about five feet in diameter, moving fast, and he saw it slide down the hill. He turned to Ellison, who in return looked at him and said, I think that was a ghost. (laughs) I think that was a ghost. I think that was a ghost. Crystal agrees. Yes. Um, Certainly interesting, but uh, I've never heard of shadow people being like 2D ghost blobs. Mm -hmm. You know, but hey... Uh, Chris Ellison grew up in the area and his experiences go back to when he was nine uh, when he and his friends wandered around the road playing flashlight tag. He told Catherine Kozak from the Virginian pilot that the most memorable of his experiences was on a random night as a child when he and his friends were hiding in the bushes. They said they saw a man on a bike wearing raggedy clothes, but he was glowing he was glowing like he was glowing oh he was glowing he wasn't he wasn't glowing he was glowing he was yeah he was glowing he wasn't like (laughs) glowing he was glowing (laughs) (laughs) yes and they were like dude it's the ghost rider which would be a totally fair thing to say as a child um, even if the ghost rider in the comics and the movies is on a motorcycle, not a bicycle, and not glowing, match. but on fire. But, you know, you know, kid brains. That would, that would, semantics. Oh <laughs> when he was in 11th grade, Ellison's friends insisted on going down to Mother Vineyard to find what they called the Potato Hut, <laughs> where enslaved people were rumored to be buried for some reason. I feel bad for laughing now. No, it's... Yeah, I know. It's A, it's a weird name to call something like that. Um, Two, a weird thing to go searching out. (laughs) But I did like walking to the super tiny gravestones that were in the middle of a court near my house. Understandable, yeah. So I I kind of get that, like the morbid curiosity. Yeah. It's kind of weird, though. They were walking along around three or four in the morning when they heard a bike bell. And it sounded urgent. Like... Imagine you're just out in the middle of a quiet, dark night. And then suddenly you hear... Ring, 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 ring. Like, urgent. I'd freak out. Yeah, oh yeah. It sounded like it was getting closer and closer until it sounded like it was right on top of them. So they did the only thing they could think of, and they ran. So they ran down to his road, walked to his house, and just sat there. And when he remembered the bell, he said he felt like nothing could protect him from it. He didn't no. know what it was, but it was just a feeling of, like, foreboding. Yeah. Ellison's friend, Hannon, um, had Chris Hannon from earlier. Yeah. You know, I don't know why I'm going. <laughs> from earlier. Earlier. He had an experience a few summers before the shadowy blob. It began with a screeching cat reportedly flinging itself around a nearby on a nearby hill as if it were being attacked by an invisible force while he watched in horror i'm thinking like that episode of spongebob where he's like i need them to think i'm tough and so patrick just starts like beating himself up but it looks like something else is beating him. him up yeah yeah and then randomly as if it had never happened the cat stopped thrashing around and ran to the foot of the dock, just walked Was just, off. okay, okay. And then the blob slithered out. Oh my. Yes. We are now going later, to refer to all shadow creatures as the blob. The blob. Another the blob. blob. Mm-hmm. A few months later, he and a group of friends returned on a night when the water glowed green because of the phosphorescent microscopic organisms in the water. Yeah. And he walked to the end of the dock wanting to enjoy the calm night. But when he rested his arms on the railing, an unseen force slammed under where he was under mm-hmm. the railing, knocking his hands away. Ooh. He couldn't see anything out in the water, and it was really calm. And before he knew it, there was another hit under he- him and his friends. And so they ran from the dock. Later that summer, Hannon was in his den trying to research the incident when he heard a piercing shriek from a cat directly outside his window. Oh. 
The thing is, his house was miles away from Mother Vineyard Road, and his window was over eight feet off the ground. Oh my gosh. So, okay, that's... Um... Yeah. Obviously, he he ran from the room, and he said, like, he was he felt like he was being warned to stay away from the dock, and yeah. even from researching it. Ann Poole, who's... I guess would now be 75-year-old paranormal investigator with Carolina Ghost Hunters in Durham, uh, who's investigated unusual activity for over three, likely four decades now, investigated Mother Vineyard Road in 2006. Poole interviewed Ellison and Hannon uh, walking up the road with them to get a better look at the sites that they talked about. She brought with her a parapsychologist, Christine Rodriguez, her son, Jack Rodriguez, and Matt Abel to help investigate. They all measured the electromagnetic fields and took photographs um, in an attempt to maybe catch orbs or something like that. They moved to the woods where Poole claimed she communicated with a spirit she mm. called Grandmotherly, mm-hmm. a woman who was a leader of a group. Okay. Uh, Rodriguez said she picked up energy from several women and her son had seen not one but four Civil War soldiers walking in single file along the road near the Mother Vine. Alrighty. It's a group of ghosts. Which I guess could actually have been something that he seen because, I mean, the island was obviously full of people who were Civil War soldiers at one point. None of, although none of the evidence collected could explain what Ellison and Hannon had experienced, but Poole said that it's possible that that's because it's more difficult to pick up paranormal activity outside. Mm-hmm. Which I have no idea if that's actually true or not, but that's what she said. <laughs> I feel like the electromagnetic fields would be the same inside as outside. You would think. Um, she also said she didn't get the sense that either of them were being untruthful, so, you know, I don't know. Yeah. The article also mentions Mary Bruce Dowd, who lived on Roanoke Island, who used to visit her grandparents' house on Mother Vineyard Road when they ran the vineyard there. She was 69 at the time of this interview uh, and remembers summers there exploring the woods, the shores, going swimming, typical beachy summer stuff. Yep. Back in the 30s, Dowd's grandfather, Robert Bruce Tull Lennon, uh, through the family's corporation Mother Vineyard Inc., built the cottage that Dowd inherited inherited on Mother Vineyard to like the north of her property angel and daniel curry live in a house that was once part of her great great grandfather van buren etheridge his property yep so behind them is the etheridge family cemetery and legend has it that webb etheridge van buren's son who died at sea is haunting the property and although dowd says she's never seen or heard anything supernatural on mother vineyard she has heard talk from others about strange occurrences and says she wouldn't discount stuff like that i mean i guess if he had like a strong pull to the property it's possible i guess he would have to if it's like a family home yeah and i mean also if he died at sea because like don't typically ghosts haunt where they yeah like you can normally i guess it would just be different if you died at sea if you weren't on a boat maybe he drowned i don't know um the article uh also mentions norman terrapin ward 81 at the time who lived on the street his entire life When he was a child, the area was even more remote and less traveled than when Dowd visited her grandparents. He said no one, no one lived up there really then, and he and his friends were out there all all day, like, day and night. Mm -hmm. Um, I said that incorrectly. Um, Okay, and I'm gonna pause you then, because my brain, I started thinking, I was like, what if you were scuba diving and just saw a bunch of ghosts hanging outside of a sunken ship? Scuba ghosts. Yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Davy Jones, yeah. How weird would it be if you were scuba diving and saw a scuba diving ghost? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> I, I think I'd be scared. <laughs> I'd be, be like, great. oh shit, I gotta go. Scuba um, ghost. <laughs> so yeah, nobody really lived up there then, but he and his friends were there like all day, all night. He also has artifacts he said that he believes could be from the lost colony, but there's no way to know. No way to know. No way to know. Who's gonna know? Um, Ward said he believes... 
<laughs> no one's gonna know. Uh, Ward How would they says know? <laughs> that he believes, like another of a number of others from his gener- generation in Manteo, that the lost colony settled at Mother Vineyard, not on the north end of the island. Uh, He heard lots of stories about the road growing up. One that the older people he knew growing up told was that during the Civil War, a paymaster with a big container of gold coins came ashore ashore off Mother Vineyard, and according to the story, someone hit him over the head and killed him, and then buried him with the coins near an old oak tree. No one ever found the coins, but Ward said that he's looked, um, so weird. I don't know why they would bury the coins with him. Mmm... That's weird to me. I mean, there are some people who believe that burying a corpse with coins over their eyes will help lead them pay their way yeah, into but the afterlife. Like, he had a bunch of coins. I don't know. They wanted to make sure he got in. Anyway. They were, they were bribing the Grim Reaper. I don't think that was it. I don't think that was it. <laughs> but um, there's also the story of old man Meekins, who let a man named Moses use his boat. Meekins got angry at him and shot him to death. Uh, Ward and his friends didn't go around there anymore after that. Um, Mm -hmm. They said after that they would hear strange noises, um, the bushes moved, they were scared, and he's never heard of the ghost rider the boys saw, the ghost rider (laughs) the boys saw, but he said there's all kind of strange noises up there, and he said he used to go back to the, he used to go to, to the woods by himself all the time but actually stopped because he started feeling like something or someone was watching him. Ooh, creepy. Yes. So, back to the paranormal investigative team. Rodriguez and her crew used dowsing rods along the road where the Ugh, cedar trees form an arch rods. over the road where uh, they're like a tunnel. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> because she said she felt a lot of energy there. Um, no, I completely understand. Um, because... They use them trying to get yes or no answers. Yeah. From the spirit's energy. And if you're just hitting like a magnetic pole that the earth just naturally has, it's gonna. (laughs) Which it's the earth. It's gonna have them. It's gonna have um, a lot of them and it's gonna have random ones. So she was using these rods and she was asking questions and it was very quiet and dark. And all of a sudden, the group started hearing these clicking sounds coming Mm -hmm. from the woods and they walked along the edge and you could hear the brush shuffling like something was following them but when they shined their flashlights they couldn't see anything there's a squirrel probably those those bastards blend in really well then rodriguez said she had one of the most intense experiences she ever had in a paranormal investigation she said this humongous energy came rolling out from the woods like it was all over her humongous energy no i'm sorry i was got humongous energy dude <laughs> no i was thinking little tiny squirrel big energy <laughs> big head little arms um have a big head and little arms so she said this energy seemed to fill the whole road and that it felt like really weird really really old mm-hmm. and the energy kept building and building getting stronger and stronger and she was convinced she was about to experience a manifestation of some sort but then a car drove by <laughs> apparently breaking whatever was going on oh no that was the energy you were supposed to see <laughs> and so then it ended but a digital infrared photograph taken during those moments revealed a bright orb hovering above the side of the road mm-hmm. and one of her assistants had also seen a black shadow like Hannah had described skitter across the road okay uh, just to the south of the docks but that is uh all that i got yeah. I hate that I'm so critical about, like, everything that you just read for the last one, but, like... But extremely, yes. <laughs> I understand. That was me. This... For the way that you are acting right now, this is the way I was acting when I was reading it. Yeah. It's, like, the the whole point of being a good paranormal researcher is trying to prove it doesn't exist. Because if you're trying to approve that it ex- it exists, you're going to see it everywhere. Exactly. So it should be like, I'm doing this to say that, to like double check it. Yeah. But, uh, mm. I don't know. That's just my own personal belief. It just, everyone can do it their own way, but I'm going to make fun of it if it's, yeah. I do think it's very interesting. I feel like they should have closed off the road. Yeah, probably. For sure. For sure. 
Okay, so you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Miss Misfortune, or you can search for us using the full name Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see what you would do. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. And please, please, please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. See, Crystal says visit it. Yes, visit it. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. subscribe. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you, thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.